Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth of Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Campbell Light Campbell. And I'm Yasin Omar. On the show this week, the MCU returns with Ant Man Quantumania. Jenny Slate embraces whimsy in Marcel the Shell with shoes on. And on Film Club, it's Jenny Slate at her pro choice finest in Obvious Child. All coming up in Truth of Movies at the White Lies podcast. So, Yasmin, very excited to have you on the podcast for the first time. Hopefully, we didn't kind of torture you too much with the films that we selected you to review. But yeah, for listeners who don't know who you are, could you explain who you are and what it is that you do? So excited to be here. I've been listening to Truth and Movies for years. So I'm Yasmin. I'm a film critic. I was previously the entertainment writer at Harper's Bazaar. And now I edit the Curzon Journal, which is Curzon Cinema's print and online magazine. So you must have like a good sense of like the upcoming titles that are coming to Curzon and like what the ones that have the most buzz about them. Like anything that like people should be particularly looking forward to? I'm actually quite excited for some of the blockbusters, to be honest. I'm really looking forward to Creed 3. I know Jonathan Majors is going to be a point of discussion shortly. And also I'm like a big Tom Cruise person. So the new Mission Impossible is like making me lose my mind. (laughs) Yeah. Did you see that video that he put out all about him achieving this stunt of riding a motorcycle off a cliff and then kind of parachuting down onto the ground? I didn't because I want to go into the film pure. And I actually, it played like as a trailer when I went to see Titanic re-released at the weekend and I just didn't watch it. I was like, no, I want to see the stunt in context. Well, watch it afterwards, because I mean, truly, that man is like giving his body and his soul to the cinema. And there was even a clip that went around on the weekend where Steven Spielberg walks up to him and thanks him for saving cinema. So like, you can't really get much better than that. Was that the Academy nominees luncheon? I think it was, because I guess he produced Top Gun Maverick. So he would have been there as a, he didn't get Best Actor, but as a kind of producer. Yeah, it looked like everyone wanted to take a picture of Tom Cruise at that event. Uh, Campbell, what about you? Regular listeners will kind of vaguely recall who you are, but do you want to give them a bit of a recap? Recap. I'm some guy who comes on and complains about animation sometimes. (laughs) Generally, I'm a freelance film critic for Little White Lies and other publications write a lot about genre films as well as animation. Well, last time you were on here, you were defending Avatar 2, you know, a giver of hot takes, shall we say. 
are they really that hot? I thought <laughs> I, I thought I was like the people's champion or something. <laughs> yeah, no, last time I was like the sole defender of Avatar. I'm trying to think of one before that. I feel like one of our earliest episodes together was talking about glass and then people generally didn't like that. And I was like, well, what's everyone talking about? It's great. So maybe I just have terrible taste and that's my niche. <laughs> yeah, we also both absolutely hated Queen and Slim on a previous episode, which I think was otherwise kind of very warmly embraced by the critical establishment. But it's kind of nice to have somebody else that sees that the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> oh my God, that film. What if Munich was more offensive? <laughs> it's definitely going to be the summer of Jonathan Majors coming up. I mean, we're all on a, a kind of Black Film Critics WhatsApp group, which kind of quickly descended into being a Jonathan Majors first trap WhatsApp group. <laughs> I mean, what do you think it is that he has as an actor where he's kind of doing so many different things? I think it's that it's what you just said. I think he's always expressing a lot with any little amount of time he's kind of showing this range of very nuanced emotions on his face and i think that sort of sometimes comes across as like twitchiness in some performances but i, th I always find it very compelling that translates a lot to i think what we're gonna talk about this week but i think he's just got a lot of very compelling presence which i feel like is a very vague thing to say but also it just feels <laughs> right for him <laughs> And, you know, quite the man mountain as well. He's almost just as compelling talking about the insane amount of diet and exercise he has to do to look quite the way that he does. Yasmin, part of the appeal for you for Jonathan Majors, not to make this podcast also a big uh, Jonathan Majors thirst trap. I feel like I need to dig into his work more. I like criminally haven't seen The Last Black Man in San Francisco, but I'm really looking forward to Magazine Dreams. I know there's huge buzz about it out of Sundance. I know you enjoyed it as well, later, or enjoyed his performance at least. So yeah, I'm looking forward to see more from him. Yeah, you, you can catch uh, my thoughts on Magazine Dream in the Curzon Journal. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, one, one of the highlights of Sundance and just, yeah, I, th I think he's becoming one of those people that no matter the title of the film, it's always going to be worth a look-see to see what he's doing in it. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via the search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of our plans. Now on to the movies. Scott Lang and Hope Van Dyne, along with Hope's parents Hank and Janet and Lang's daughter Cassie, go on a new adventure exploring the quantum realm and push their limits and pit themselves against Kang the Conqueror. Before we get started, I got to talk to Ant-Man star and Hollywood legend Michael Douglas. Excited to meet you. What a what a fabulous background you have compared well, to Well, not as start. nice as yours. Are you one of those lucky podcasters who could work at home? Basically, yeah. Nah, well, what I've a nice life. So doing like a press tour like this and promoting the film, like these films have got such a loyal audience kind of built in. Like, does it take the pressure off because kind of the success of it is almost guaranteed? Well, that's true. But on the contrary, you're so terrified of making a mistake or not living up to the expectations that this Marvel audience has because they know everything. You know, they, they follow from, from the comics so carefully. And for someone like myself who had no awareness whatsoever, I was not a comic book reader when I was a kid. And when I did the first Ant-Man now, gosh, eight years ago, 
I literally needed a teacher to come in and sort of explain to me the genealogy of the different families of the Marvel world and how everybody existed and the importance of Hank Pym as somebody who basically created the Avengers. So I think it's more a question of living, living up to their standards or not disappointing these rabid uh, viewers. And I don't know if you've ever been to a comic con, but they're they're a unique breed, to say the least. Um, they, they're, they're, they're rabid in their enthusiasm and uh, very candid and honest about how they feel. It's quite stunning. I have the greatest respect for them and also being a novice, I try not to show my, my ignorance. And, I mean, it's kind of interesting looking back on um, some of the other huge box offices that you had, like Basic Instinct, War of the Roses, Fatal Attraction. Those were like some of the top grossing films of the time. Right. You know, now it's kind of the blockbuster seems to be very different from that sort of film. Why do you think that the sort of films that become those huge blockbuster successes has changed so much? Well, I think streaming. You know, streaming um, streaming has absorbed a lot of our romantic comedies and, you know, it's just sucked up so much material. And it's also been a wonderful bridge between the television and the film industry, which is different in the States than it is here in the UK, where talent is much freer to go between television and movies, where in the States it was pretty isolated. So streaming has sort of made a bridge or a crossing to bring these two industries together. And therefore, particularly writers, a lot of writers from movies have moved into streaming and uh, because they can also produce these shows. So the quality is, is, is very good. Thus, it really only left open the area for the, 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 the big tentpole pictures, the, uh, the top gun on one side, more realistic to the, the Marvel world, and, and horror pictures. Horror pictures of the other milieu that still can work in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Because you like, you know, you like to get your date on that first date. She screams and cuddles into your head. Arm to protect her, you know, all that kind of stuff. Date, date movie stuff. I suppose in some ways, Fatal Attraction is kind of the worst date movie imaginable. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like to, yeah. Well, I know it was good for the married for the married wives, though they 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 loved it. So I remember um, we were in France. We, we we were promoting that Fatal Attraction in France, and and the was doing like this reporter said, well, you know, in in France, in France, we all have mistresses. So this is this movie is not very you know important because it was a huge success in France. Every French wife brought their husband to the movie. Said, okay, here's what's going to happen if you don't look out. But you know, thinking that something else is that's kind of changed is when you're making something like *Romancing the Stone*. That must have been way more like practical, and you're actually on location and kind of shooting yeah. in the environment. I mean, is that very different to the experience of something like this, which is much more kind of computer-generated? Yes. All, all the movies that I've done till now were both contemporary, contemporary characters, and any action we had, 99% was, was, was real you know, physical action there involving either stuntmen. So, yeah, this is a whole other kind of separated world. You're not as emotionally involved in, the, in because in terms of the internal of the scenes, because it's you're only a part of the overall action that's going on. So it's more kind of technically related, but yet really interesting. It's for me. I'm always curious to see what's on the cutting edge of um, of digital filmmaking 
because in my 50 years, the, the, the big separation in the industry was digital versus celluloid film, mm-hmm. which was a whole different time and a different pace. So, yes, you, you, you would say this is the reason why I wanted to do it. And now I'm just trying to see if I can get out of the quantum realm. As an actor, then, in your performance, is that an additional challenge? Because you are also having to kind of imagine what's going on so much more. Correct. You know, correct. Yeah, they, uh, Peyton will show us, you know, they have storyboards or pictures that will sh- that show you what it's going to look like. But they suggest we have sort of an idea or we're walking through the realm, this point where I hold something up and hold it. I have nothing in my hand. There's nothing there. And this is the area where you look at the director and say, you sure I don't look silly? No, 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 no. You look, you, you look fine. Don't you worry. And then we see the movie. And go, whoa! Look at that, and what was behind me, and what's above me, and the object that I'm holding. So yeah, it's a completely different kind of uh, format, and it's much more sort of broken up because of the technicalities. So always exciting to try to find something new. With kind of like that, all of these kind of technical aspects to take into account. You and Paul have got such, you know, so many great comedic roles in your past, and like. Peyton's directed amazing comedies. Was there still a bit of room for improvisation? Paul had more of a, uh, of a more freedom than the rest of us did. I mean, he's inherently he's a he's a, he's a good writer, and he did a you know had more freedom. We were kind of muzzled pretty carefully. I had to keep a, a, a close watch uh, uh, on the on the script. That was I wouldn't say it was a sore point, but it is an interesting point. A lot of it is because it's so orchestrated. Although we were jealous because Paul had a, more of a free reign. Oh, 50 years in the industry and two Oscars. I'm amazed that they wouldn't be like whatever you want, Michael. Well, I I was a little t- I mean it's also with the with the scripts, you know, you think that uh, but no, we keep it a close reign when that script comes in and and uh, even though they know that afterwards when it's all over there are going to be a lot of rewrites and changings but they uh, uh, they kind of keep that in sync to, be, to begin with and you know not just you but also the legendary Michelle Pfeiffer on this I think I kind of Mandela affected into my mind that I'd seen the two of you in some thriller in the past but this is like I was shocked to find out this is the first time you'd worked together yeah um, were there any near collaborations in the past we talked about it and, and she never told me Michelle thought there was one. Uh, I don't remember what it was. It was but there was a scheduling conflict? But yeah, it was a real treat to work with Michelle. Obviously, I admired her for a long time, and sort of thought that she already was an expert from doing Catwoman, you know, years ago. But she said even then they had no. There was no sort of real special effects other than her kind of lycra suit she was wearing, and, and uh, so it was. It was great. Then she took a. a break of time uh, in her career for her family. But sure, I'm a fan of hers, too, and uh, we hit it off. It was fun. I mean, this this one, Quantumania, sort of picks up after the 30 years that she'd been down in the quantum realm, lost, uh, before we got her out. Um, so I, I enjoy this sort of starting a new relationship together with, a, with your wife that you've been with for a long time, but not actually been with. And so I enjoyed this little kind of the, the, the sense of a little bickering, and and even though we both were major act, action heroes earlier in our our careers and worked as a team, I had little difficulties. Hank, the character of going to the quantum realm where she knew so well, and she would be taking the leap because she knew the place, and and um, I, I I miss the equality of our team together, and would tend to be a little bickering. 
Yeah, and there's a there's a little jealousy, a little kind of miniature love triangle, I suppose. That kind of well, yeah, the... yeah, and I was introduced to some of her uh, uh, her mates uh, down in the realm from one time or another. Do you have kind of a shared understanding and approach to kind of filmmaking, based that you have a similar background. Um, yes, I, I I I don't know exactly her working. I know my first relation was before we started the film. We were staying in the same hotel and we're down in the gym working out, and I was just amazed at her her workout, which is about three times uh, what mine was, and saw that she was uh, in amazing shape, you know, and had great great stamina, great aerobic exercises, and and thought, wow, you're really really getting ready for this this picture, aren't you? She said, no, this is my regular workout. I went, whoa, okay. So she's a very disciplined uh, lady, has a very clear on direction and action and, and, and really a, a joy to work with, but, you know, just all business and takes care of it, does a good job. D- delighted to hear that Michelle Pfeiffer isn't a monster, secretly. Um, no. I mean, I believe after this, after Hank Pym, you're going to be playing another genius in the way of Benjamin Franklin. Is there a particular attraction to playing these kind of brilliant minds? Well, in the in the spirit of what are things I have not done, um, I had not done a period piece. I've just never in 50 years. So that was the attraction. And one, of course, Ben Franklin was a little intimidating in terms of everything he's accomplished. But yes, we finished that. That was an eight-part Apple series, which I shot in Paris uh, this this last year. And I think it's coming out in, in the fall and excited about it. I just feel like there is that renewed interest in the, those kind of revolutionary figures post-Hamilton. Like uh, people kind of can't get enough of hearing about them. Um, I guess so. You know, there, there seems sort of, maybe it's just the time of the of our independence or some of our American heroes or people we looked up to at a time when there's not many. We're not having a tough time finding many American heroes right now. Oh, well, perhaps that's part of the appeal of these uh, yeah. of these films. People need some good guys that's in their lives. True. Yeah, and finally, I'll leave you with, obviously this film is going to be huge, but for those coming out of like Ant-Man 3 who kind of can't bring themselves to wait for Ant-Man 4 or for Franklin to watch another Michael Douglas film, is there anything from your filmography that you think was maybe overlooked and, you know, could do with a reappraisal? Wow. it's a nice question. Thank you. I, I always liked a picture called Wonder Boys, which I made in, mm-hmm. in 2000, uh, which didn't necessarily get a lot of attention. I would, I would suggest people take a look at that. That's, a, again, in that kind of shaggy dog, humorous uh, uh, point it's got a, it's got a great cast uh, Robert Downey Toby McGuire Francis McDormand Katie Holmes myself and uh, that was that was what I would recommend Wonder, Wonder Boys great well thank you so much for your time I really appreciate thank it thank you treat enjoy enjoy rest of your day <laughs> you too bye okay, Right, Camberley, to kick us off with Ant-Man. I mean, we're now very far into the MCU. How much background knowledge do you think you need to come to this film with in order to just comprehend what's going on? What's this, like the 30th story or film? I think it's something like film 25, which is an insane number to me. With this one, I'm just trying to count in my head the mentions of like different things that happen. So there's at least the two Ant-Man films. There's mention of a Captain America. It's carrying on story that was introduced 
in the TV show Loki. There's mention of multiple Avengers films, so there's about six or seven. <laughs> so I think that already gets into the wariness about this particular film because it's Ant-Man 3, but it's also the sequel to about 10 years of movies and seven specific things and a TV show. <laughs> what I've been saying to friends of mine is that Marvel have very successfully replicated their comic book model and taken that from page to screen in that they are doing event comic books all the time, complete with like reading lists and crossovers and all of this stuff. But they also don't have any of the necessary things to keep you like anchored through that. Like if you're reading a comic book, when someone turns up from something else, there'll be a y- little yellow box <laughs> just being like, check out this thing for more information that this is from here and you'd kind of just file that away mentally and be like okay fine here you've got to know or uh, that's it (laughs) and it's becoming increasingly ridiculous and disorientating yes for you i mean like they're getting very episodic and you know we have these distinct phases this is the first of phase five so it's set up with tasking this kind of creating this new big group of films and of tv shows do you think it gets like overburdened by the pressure to kind of set up so much other stuff Yeah, I mean, it does feel like a filler film. And to come back to the homework, I thought I had done my homework because I watched the two Ant-Man films. But I didn't realise that Jonathan Majors' character, Kang the Conqueror, appeared in Loki. And so there was a lot of backstory that I wasn't really aware of in those terms. I think it's very hard to be a casual viewer of Marvel these days, because as Campbell was saying, there's so much build up for all of the other films. And yeah, I just felt like this film was setting up for the next Avengers film, I think it's called Kang Dynasty. So yeah, I feel it's not really enjoyable to watch because you just feel like you're looking back on what's come before and looking forward rather than being in the moment and enjoying what you're watching. Yeah, I think that's very fair. But I mean, it's called Quantumania. We're kind of set in the quantum realm. Cambalet, for you, you are our animation person, which in my mind also means CGI. Like, how did you feel that that realm was realised? It's kind of the most boring possible version they could have made of it. Actually, no, that's not true. I'd say we're maybe like two steps away from that. But it's like it's leaning towards something psychedelic. Like you're going to have a lot of early reactions being like, it's a real acid trip. It's like being on drugs. And I don't think that's even remotely close. (laughs) It's, It's like maybe the art direction of it is leaning towards something like that. But in its presentation, it's the same as ever. A lot of like medium shots of people standing in a line in front of a green screen. Sometimes they run away from things. It doesn't really feel like a different world in its presentation of it. Like there's no there's no effort to kind of present anything as sort of hallucinatory or just different or strange like through the camera work or editing or anything. It's just like fully dependent on that VFX. And I think that kind of ends up harming it in the long run because you're just kind of left to look for the seams because you're just presented an image and then you start seeing the edges around the actors and you're just kind of taken out of it. It just doesn't really feel immersive at all. And I was thinking about it the whole time and I was like, maybe they should have just used miniatures (laughs) in a lot of cases. I would have been more convinced. I feel like whenever you say they all look the same, you immediately get pushback and someone will go look at this and then you get presented a picture of something that looks like the Windows Media Player visualizer and (laughs) this kind of fits into that vague category as well which is sad because you kind of know from a lot of general reporting now that Marvel generally treats their VFX workers like dirt so you kind of think about that and then you look at the screen and then you're like and for what? 
So I, that's how I feel about that element of the film. It just didn't do anything for me. And I wish it did because the first two are actually really creative, I think. Even if they're not working with a crazy visual palette, they have instances of like this macro photography, which I thought was quite fun and interesting. It adds like an actual different dimension to the film. And this doesn't really feel like it adds anything new. It just feels like any other world that they have traveled to. There's a moment where Scott was just like, when they're in the quantum realm and he's just like, oh, it's so beautiful. And I'm like, what are you looking at? It's CGI goop. Like, what is beautiful about this? <laughs> Whenever someone says something like that, you always just you just like, is it, is it really? <laughs> I feel like maybe it should be some kind of rule of thumb, but not someone to like gawk at whatever's around them. It does. It doesn't seem to be helping anybody here. Yeah, I mean, it's something for me that really ruined the end of uh, Shang Chi. As soon as you get into that sort of weightless mush of kind of color, and it always seems to be a bit dark and sludgy in so many of these things at the moment, it's uh, it completely loses me. I can't even kind of view the people and the action that's happening as being tangible. Yeah, I think you're right in saying that kind of Windows screensaver thing. But to this film's credit, they have assembled quite the cast. We've got Paul Rudd, who everyone loves, Jonathan Majors, we've uh, already mentioned, you know, obviously Michael Douglas and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. I have to say I was pretty impressed by Michelle Pfeiffer, Yasmin. What about you? I was glad she had something more to do because in Ant-Man and the Wasp, she shows up for maybe five minutes and then is stuck in the quantum realm and we don't see her again until the end. So yes, I did enjoy that she had a bit more to do and she had a little bit of a sparring relationship with Bill Murray in a cameo, which was quite fun. But generally, I do find find it depressing when they get all these A-list actors and put them into these Marvel films because so often they're just tasked with blaring exposition at each other and not really able to give a proper performance. Even with Jonathan Majors, because I was sold that Kang, I believe, has multiple different versions of himself. So I thought he was going to play like 10 or 15 versions of himself and he just really only gets to do the big bad thing and he's doing his best obviously like he's a great actor but I just think there wasn't enough meat on the bone there for most of them and they just hire all these amazing actors for them to talk in front of CGI for two and a half hours. Regarding Jonathan Majors I, th I think it's so appropriate that he's playing a guy who exists out of like time and space because it feels like he beamed in from a different movie <laughs> but this isn't like a knock against him because I love him as a performer but he's giving this like really dramatic performance he feels like the world has been put on his shoulders or turned against him or something like that and then you'll kind of cut to the next scene and then there's like Paul Rudd messing around with like this fleshy thing <laughs> it's, it, it's always just totally at odds even though like i'm enjoying bits of these things in isolation like i kind of enjoy what he's doing because i don't know sometimes you have a lot of marvel villains that are very kind of self-defensively quippy uh, in a way that undercuts any sort of seriousness of it like you don't take a lot of the villains seriously because the film doesn't take them seriously because it's afraid of taking comic books seriously and because that naturally leads to some very goofy stuff because comic book villains are naturally very silly so it was kind of nice to see something like that and he's treating it like shakespeare and everyone else is treating it like an episode of rick and morty <laughs> which i think leads to kind of some tonal incongruity which is a shame because i really like everyone involved as far as the cast goes paul rudd's always really charming Michael Douglas is, you know, he's Michael Douglas. <laughs> also, with with the tone, I feel the reason that people like the first two Ant-Men is because they were low stakes and they were light, whereas this one is so heavy. And I feel like even Paul Rudd like, is kind of lost in the weight of that, whereas in the previous ones, he had his little jokes. And I do agree with you about undercutting the seriousness of moments. Like, there's a moment where Cassie, who is now played by Catherine Newton, which is Scott's daughter, she said that she never had a normal childhood and then 
then hope it's just like oh let's put on the radio let's not deal with anything serious let's just go straight to the next thing which i just find is annoying because you never really delve into anything it's just like surface level it's another movie that's kind of getting railroaded by that sort of responsibility to set other things up you could probably have just made this a family adventure and <laughs> you could probably remove kang have the same kind of adventure and maybe have more time to like reckon with some stuff i mean i suppose it's a difficult thing because of course cassie is like you know sort of very upset and has that they spent these five years apart because of the blip or whatever but then you also have to have this exist in a universe where this happened to 50 percent of people so you're like the fact that you would have this very kind of specific pain and so much self-pity i found ended up finding her quite irritating i mean the thing that I actually did quite enjoy in this was that kind of weirdness, was the sort of strange, you know, Jonathan Majors Kang feeling like he was from a different world. It's something I quite like about the film Street Fighter, where it's a terrible, silly film. I mean, a much worse film than this, but then like Raul Julia's coming in and giving like a Shakespearean performance as like General Bison. You were blessed the day Bison came to your village. <laughs> what was it? He says it for me, it was Tuesday. It's just one of the hardest lines. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, are there anything else that you kind of feel that we should be like touching upon? We did have a few other kind of, you know, little actors doing smaller roles. You mentioned Bill Murray. I actually really enjoyed William Jackson Harper as Quaz. Were there any highlights for either of you? I was going to say him as well, because he was doing his usual kind of frustrated straight man thing, only he can read minds. So he's kind of burdened with that responsibility every day of his life. And I think he's just very funny as a very perpetually tired man. So I was enjoying little bits like that. I think the film does have some really fun, like kind of little cameo appearances and line readings, like things that would be nothing in other people's hands are made very funny just by virtue of Paul Rudd saying it. There's some of the creature design is really fun. I think I think sometimes it leans too hard into the sort of like, I say Rick and Morty again, because it is literally penned by one of the writers of that show but it kind of leans a little bit too hard into that show's obsession with like kind of weird fleshy creatures it's like you have that kind of joke once and then you hear it again and again and again and you kind of like okay i get it like can we if this is a world of infinite possibility or whatever maybe we can get a different kind of joke but i think it has its moments in that regard i do also think that it's quite funny that he is called ant-man but he's also giant man in the comics so he gets big sometimes as well as being small but there's there's a bit in it when it just looks like he's a normal sized person and that had me thinking about another film that had a very, very short run in UK cinemas recently called Shin Ultraman, based on the kind of old tokusatsu series from Japan in the 60s. And that had a guy in a suit, a red suit, who was really, really big. And how they shot that was just on a, obviously how they shot a lot of those shows was just on a miniature set. So it was just very small buildings and they would do shots from inside those buildings to like kind of emphasize scale. And it's like supposedly people in an office, like watching him go by their window. And I was just thinking like, how cool would it have been if they'd done something like that to emphasize the scale of him rather than just like put him in front of the same CG background where he just looks like normal sized Paul Rudd. (laughs) And it's just like, I feel like it's missing so many creative opportunities here. that just feels like a shame. It was much easier to get a sense of scale though when they were in San Francisco because you could see him versus, you know, a car or when they're sitting on the top of the Golden Gate Bridge and things like that. When they're just in this kind of CGI world, it's very difficult to get a sense of his actual size. And as you say, when they're big, you can't really tell that they're big. Another issue I have is the kind of family dynamics. We're just supposed to understand that they are a close-knit family. Like just using nicknames like Peanut and Jellybean in place of actual character work. And the whole Scott 
hope relationship as well just like is not established at all like in the last Ant-Man and the Wasp film they can't even say that they're in a relationship basically they're like oh we were working together we were other stuffing together does does that mean you were dating okay sure and then they're presented as a couple at the beginning of this film I just I feel like families are only used in terms of like blackmailing for villains (laughs) (laughs) I do wonder about that because you're right that it's so chaste but then this film is kind of leaning towards something a little bit more explicit it, which makes for a really strange whole deal. It's like they you can't even have two characters kissing and, and then there's like creatures talking about their holes. <laughs> like, what, what are you going for here? Yeah, I did think um, the presence of Douglas and Pfeiffer did kind of work against it in that regard because, I mean, they're kind of sexual frisson or whatever between Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly was negligible and they kind of harkened back to an era where they genuinely were like the leads that, you know, had such incredible chemistry and such kind of sexual kind of desire for for the love interests in in the big movies that they made. I mean, I'm just thinking of Michelle Pfeiffer in, in Batman. Like, you don't, it doesn't have to be explicit, but I think that is something that we're really lacking in some of these movies. But yeah, we should get some scores on this because we got two more films to cover. Uh, Campbell, do you want to go first? In anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. Anticipation three. Uh, I'm burned out on these films. I even though I love the comics. I did like the other two Ant-Man films for the reasons that Yasmin said, because they were very low stakes and just very charming and sweet. So I was like, hey, give this one a chance. Enjoyment 2, I was kind of bored out of my mind, <laughs> save from a few moments in retrospect. It's probably going to be a 2 as well. Yasmin, what about you? Probably a 2 in anticipation. I'd done my homework, but I think I have quite an incurable case of Marvel fatigue at this point. And then to an enjoyment, again, like Campbell I was bored and I wasn't really enjoying the jokes and wasn't having the best time. And then I'd say a two in retrospect. I just, they feel so disposable. Like if Martin Scorsese is right that these are theme park rides, I just want to get off the ride and leave the park. Yeah, I think I'm not far off. I mean, three, because the cast was a bit better than I've kind of come to expect. William Jackson Harper in absolutely anything is enough to make me intrigued. And yeah, maybe a two in enjoyment and a two in retrospect. I mean, I didn't intensely dislike it. Um, I, you know, I did have a few moments, a few little idiosyncrasies that I thought were fun. But I think when you see the amount of talent that's on screen, it does feel rather squandered. Next up, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Marcel is a one-inch tall shell and lives with his grandmother, Connie, the only residents of their town after their family's disappearance. When Marcel is discovered by a guest amongst the clutter of his Airbnb, the short film he posts online brings Marcel millions of passionate fans and a new hope of reuniting with his long-lost family. So, Yasmin, with this film, I mean, it's kind of in a way feels like a bit of a pandemic. There's a lot of pandemic themes in here. We've got kind of the separation, the isolation, somebody kind of pottering around their home and trying to occupy themselves and bring a little joy into their lives. Was that something that you connected with? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I cringe at pandemic art because like a lot of it was kind of unbearable. But I feel that this one kind of deals with the themes about actually specifically being set during the pandemic. But yeah, it's about community and a sense of home, but also a kind of loss and grief because um, Marcel and his Nana Connie, played by Isabella Rossellini, um, have been separated from their wider community. So I think it has a lot of universal themes in there. And Campbell, am I right in thinking this was a series of shorts before it became a feature film? Were you familiar with kind of the original Marcel the Shell? Actually, no, I never watched the original shorts. I have seen some YouTube shorts by the animation director, whose name I cannot recall at this specific moment, but it was called Hey Stranger. And it's like a little plasticine guy with his butt out. And it's really strange. I remember seeing that one like a little while ago. So I only had like, I only had passing familiarity with Marcel. But you can tell that some of this film is in part about the recognition that those shorts got like that much I can kind of get without looking. And I thought that was interesting. If it's more of the same, then sure, I guess I I might eventually check it out. (laughs) And this is kind of this like kind of side project that Jenny Slate did with her then husband. She's had this slightly awkward experience of reuniting with her ex to make this. Her voice performance in this to me was so extraordinary. I mean, like Yasmin, what did you make of it kind of in terms of the voices. I mean, not just her, but Isabella Rossellini. I, I love the voice work on this. I think she has like, this kind of gravelly tone, Jenny Slate this is, but it's also very childlike and this, you can really get the emotions like the sense of glee or the disappointment. Something I found that was interesting is that normally you record these things like separately in your little booths, but because they, I think they did a lot of this during the pandemic, they actually went to Isabella Rossellini's farm in upstate New York and they recorded it together. And to get that voice, like Jenny Slate puts a finger in her ear so she can kind of work on the tonality of it, which I think is quite interesting. With Isabella Rossellini, I think the explanation of her accent is quite funny because they say, oh, she was brought, she came from the garage. That's why she has that accent. And she came over here in a coat pocket. I just, I really like that sense of humor. I think it's very cute. I mean, I guess this kind of film lives or dies based on how charmed you are by it because, you know, there's not much going on beyond I mean, yes, there is this kind of larger story, but mostly it's just asking you to spend time with this little shell and kind of delight in their antics. Like, did that work for you, Campbell? Were you charmed by this tiny little shell who just wants his family back? Um, in moments, um, maybe maybe I'm dead inside, but I kind of preferred the moments when the film was being a little bit meaner. Um, 
I kind of liked the offhand jokes about like uh, Marcel's cousin getting trapped in a washing machine and experiencing. <laughs> just uh, there was a there was a little throwaway line afterwards where he just like sat at the window and watched fire trucks go by. After that, <laughs> and I, was, I thought stuff like the, the kind of little dark jokes like that were quite funny because everything else. I don't know. I felt like very expected. The the kind of whole nice core vibe of it, I'm becoming a little bit allergic to. It felt like it was trying to prod me into like feeling something <laughs> like very aggressively, where I kind of just wanted to let it wash over me a little bit. So Marcel himself is quite a funny little creation. I do like the, like I said, the meanness of some of it or gro- when it gets a little bit gross, like making rope out of bathtub hairs and things like that. I thought it was really amusing. Like when it, when it's playing with everyday objects as something as part of his general, like everyday life, like bottle caps for Prosecco bottles made into chairs or walkers <laughs> and things of that nature. But I think when it came to the characters themselves, I just felt very distanced from it. It didn't entirely work for me. I, I kind of say with you, I felt so kind of some of the more the darker lines were really funny. There's there's one where Marcel is describing how long he's been apart from his family, and he says it's like, and I've watched the trees fall, you know, the leaves fall and the blossoms grow, and I just know they've been apart as like big as the, the space in my heart gets larger. And the guy next to him just goes two years, and he goes, good to know. <laughs> <laughs> like that stuff is that stuff is really good. I think it can have a really sharp sense of humor. I feel like the kind of off camera presence. And then on camera, the presence of the director started to bother me a little bit. It felt very, I don't know, it felt very navel gazing with the, the, you hear the constant like laughing off camera. And I'm like, I know it's supposed to be a representation of them warming up to the little shell with shoes on. But at the same time, you kind of just want to experience all of that stuff for yourself without being like very directed towards the feeling that this is cute and charming and nice. It felt very aggressive in that sort of way to me, in a way that kept me from enjoying it fully. So when it has moments that sort of break that tone, like getting car sick or the washing machine anecdote, I think those are the moments that work best for me because I felt like truly surprised. Everything else felt like meh. Well, I mean, it's not. Uh, it's also got some other ideas going uh, on. Uh, you know, Yasmin, what do you think of the kind of commentary on internet fame? Because Marcel becomes very famous, but then he's sort of dismayed to see that that's not necessarily because people want to help him. Yeah, I think it's it's a nice, well, a kind of crushing moment in a way when Marcel realizes that just because loads of people are watching his shorts on YouTube doesn't actually mean that they care about him. He says something like it's not a community, it's an audience, which I think is very true of online. So you see all these like reactions on screen of these little heart reacts and people commenting. And there's a, an amusing moment where um, someone comments peace and love. And then Marcel just goes on a rant like, oh, what, what do you expect me to be into war? And just like, why is that such a stupid, inane thing to say? And apparently that was really Jenny Slade just going off on one in character and they just kept it in, which I thought was funny. It was a good rant, actually. The... Um... Online stuff is interesting because it's sort of, um, I don't know, I mean, it just, it definitely feels like it was made for YouTube, this film. <laughs> so it's interesting to kind of go into the dynamics of that community and kind of feel like you're saying stuff into the void rather than to people who might respond back. But then I, I think it's not entirely cynical about sort of online relationships because it does eventually like feed into something meaningful for Marcel. So I thought that was interesting in that it's showing the sort of two sides of that coin. Also, just the animation itself was really interesting because I, I remember that they had to like fight pretty hard for this to be in the animated category because it was starting to brush up against the rule that it had to be 75% animated. And I guess not much of the background is. 
it's mainly just the character so i think it's like when you start asking about the numbers there it's very it becomes very slippery to define which i thought was just a very interesting thing to see play out on screen and it's also very interesting going back into the animation studio's history because they're the, this is all very cute and nice and then go back a couple of decades and they're the puppet masters on team america world police <laughs> Yeah, another Stone Cold classic. But yes, with you. So this has been nominated, as Kamala mentioned, for the Best Animated Picture. Do you think that's a deserving accolade? Yeah, I think it's the first hybrid live action animated film to be nominated in the category since it started about 20 years ago. So that's nice that it managed to hit that milestone. It seems like it was very difficult to make from what I was reading. Like they had to shoot everything in live action first and then shoot it again for animation. And there's a scene where Nana Connie and Marcel go ice skating like on a rink which is just a table with dust on it and I was reading about how they got that made and they basically had to do little tracks in the dust with a q-tip to make sure it looked like the lines on like the the bottom of their skates and things so I think it's deserving I think it's very it's nice to see something that's also slightly different like I feel a lot of the time in that category it's just like Pixar domination so I don't really think it has like much of a shot of actually winning that's probably going to be Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio but I think it's nice that it got recognized yeah it it is strange though because we're kind of talking about this as being the animated one but in some ways it feels much more practical and tangible than Ant-Man Quantumania (laughs) like you could argue which one was more was more animated but we won't get into that because we've got film club to do but uh, so should we do our scores then Yasmin Do you want to go first? Yeah, so I'd probably say Anticipation of Three, like it came out in the US in June. So it's been like a long wait with a lot of hype. And I was just worried it wouldn't necessarily be able to live up to it. And I'd say probably a four in enjoyment. I mean, it was cute without being cutesy, which I feared it would be. And then a four in retrospect, I really enjoyed this. And I watched it again for a second time. And I was charmed by it against my better judgment. Campbell, what about you, the dark heart of the podcast? <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's normally me. I'm just excited to pass the bass on for one week. Happy to serve. Straight threes for me, I think. I feel the same as Yasmin on anticipation in that it, I've been hearing about it a lot for a long time. And I think my expectations sort of started to diminish over time because I was like, I'm not entirely seeing what is completely special about it. And I think the same applies to my enjoyment of it. I think there were moments that I think that just fell short for me. I felt very distanced from the film as much as it felt like it was trying to provoke me into something rather than let it happen more naturally. I just don't think it felt fully there for me. I did have moments where I found it really, really funny and moments where I did find it very charming. Like the reunion with certain characters is, uh, that's nice. <laughs> it's nice, I guess. That's that's my in retrospect. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I am perfectly aligned with Yasmin. Uh, three in anticipation, four in enjoyment. I loved the animation and I just I just thought it was really witty and I loved the little voice performances and just I think tiny little moments tended to be the funny just bits for me. But yeah, I watch a lot of children's film with my children and I'd be very excited to show them this because not since Wolf Walkers have I persuaded them that like an actually good animated film is their favorite film so I'm going to try again Wolf Walkers is great uh yeah no we were like <laughs> I managed to have a great three months where you hear about these like frozen families that have to watch frozen every day and that was my family with Wolf Walkers it was great <laughs> next up it's film club In Obvious Child, an immature, newly unemployed comic, Jenny Slate, must navigate the murky waters of adulthood after her fling with a graduate student results in an unplanned pregnancy. So, Campbell, is this your first time coming to Obvious Child? 
Yes, and it feels like a strange film to watch today because it feels very like late 2000s, early 2010s. I was, just, I felt like I was suddenly years ago, and mumblecore was still in vogue. It's my first encounter with it, even though I'd heard about it quite a lot. I remember hearing about it when it came out, and I was like, "Oh, that sounds great! I'll get around to it, I'm sure." And I guess I did. Ten years later, and I mean, like in terms of a Jenny Slate performance, I kind of knew her before watching this film as being the awful sister of John Ralphio in Parks and Recreation. So, I mean, were you kind of impressed by this range of this woman? She can be, I think it's Mona Lisa, and she can be Marcel, and she can be a comic where it's not fully established whether or not she's any good at stand up. It's a mystery that we'll never know. Even by the end, we'll never know. Well, at the time I'd heard about it, I was only really familiar with her from Parks and Recreation, but as of this week. I'd also seen Marcel the Shell with shoes on. So I was kind of aware of some kind of range there in uh, what she's doing, at least vocally. And in this, yeah, I was um, really impressed by what she was doing here as like the sort of person who is completely unable to communicate other than through maybe her stand-up as this sort of avenue for like letting her feelings actually like spill out. And it's not like it's a really brooding performance, but I think she's very, very funny. It kind of makes me wonder about more leading roles for her and what they might look like because the things I've seen are in all very, very different from each other. I mean, I think she's someone who really is suited to being a rom-com lead because she's charming and she's really funny. But like, we don't make that many of these sorts of movies anymore. I mean, Yasmin, are you somebody that kind of longs for the return of the rom-com? Oh, big time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of the rom-com generally as a genre. And I think it's kind of a shame that it's mostly just been shuffled onto streaming with little fanfare. And that picture of Ashton Kutcher and Reese Witherspoon promoting their latest Netflix rom-com, where they look so uncomfortable with each other, just a bit depressing because there's no real chemistry between people anymore. And even in that Jonah Hill one, you people, when it turned out that the kiss at the end wasn't real, it was CGI. It's just like you couldn't even kiss your co-star for like one moment no screen I just yeah yeah did you not see that on twitter yeah, it was a whole thing on twitter like last week but i i love a rom-com some of my fa- like one of my favorite genres and what i enjoy about this one in particular is like its presentation of abortion within the the film it's just it's never really it's not a big melodramatic moment is just a part of life and I remember at the time actually there was a bit of controversy because NBC had censored an ad for it because it had the word abortion in it and then Planned Parenthood had this like massive petition when it got 12,000 signatures and then they put the word abortion back in NBC said it was a mistake but I think the way they treat it with a with a light touch, but also having these st- stories of different women coming together, I think is very powerful. And at the time, when I saw it in 2014, it felt pretty groundbreaking. Yeah, I mean, sadly, the way things have happened in America, we've repealed Roe v. Wade and stuff. Well, not we, it wasn't me. Yeah, so I could, this film made nowadays, I think, would be a little bit darker than it is in this version. But like, I, I guess, Yasmin, it's like the criticism of so many rom-coms is that they are a bit misogynistic and like how do you bring that to like a new progressive audience with that kind of idea that a man comes along and sweeps you off your feet and often that requires some kind of wonderful professional glamorous woman falling for some schlubby dude with little (laughs) recommend him I mean like what do you do you think something like Obvious Child is kind of the blueprint for what the future of the rom-com should be looking at? 
yeah, I would I would like rom coms to be more like that. I think also what's um there's less like woman on woman hate, which I feel is like quite often like a mainstay within the rom com because at the beginning Jenny Slate's boyfriend leaves her for another woman and then she has a lot of anger towards this woman and then another character just says to her, Why are you focusing all of your hatred on her? Like it's your boyfriend who left you which I feel is not something you hear in a rom com very often. And also just I think it's presentation of like bodily functions it doesn't have a squeamishness around like women's bodies which i approved of like when you see jenny slade's underwear next to jake lacy's head and it's like covered in vaginal discharge i think that was the first time i'd seen that on screen i was just like i mean good for you (laughs) this is a woman's body and this is how it works Chamblay also charmed by the vaginal discharge. Is that refreshing? <laughs> oh, totally. It's like top, of, top of my notes. Yeah, I was. I was just thinking about what you were saying about like they're having the trope of being swept off one's feet, and I did like that. It sort of has this slight, kind of dark inversion of that, where the guy comes in, he's very charming, he sweeps her off her feet, and then it kind of just ruins her month. <laughs> In that, and also in that, like, he's the uh, kind of, like, very put-together person and she's simply put a bit of a mess because, you know, she's in this sort of a very, like, tumultuous state, having, like, just been cheated on and broken up with. And I think this sort of having her as this very messy and sometimes very self-involved and unpleasant person, like, it's a very more humanist angle than the sort of very shiny perfection that you might be trained to expect from traditional rom-coms and i think it's playing very intently with an awareness of that i mean there's even a bit later on where they're talking about the absence of the rom-com genre or something like that because even yeah even at the time it was sort of just um it sort of stood out as the rare rom-com like the uh, real real cinematic unicorn yeah was this around the time of enough said those were kind of my two like those were the two that i look back on and be like bring more of that back i must say Although at least Nicole Hofstetter is actually coming back with another film soon. So, you know, there might be maybe some life in the old subgenre yet. But yeah, before we move on, Yasmin, any last thoughts on Obvious Child? Yeah, speaking about the messy woman thing that Campbell mentioned, if it, as, he, as he said, it's very much of its time. It feels like Lena Dunham's Girls or like Desiree Akaban's um, appropriate behaviour. Like this was such a thing at that time. And it did feel like a bit of a time capsule to go back and watch this film now uh, with the with the beauty of hindsight. Another thing as well is that Planned Parenthood was actually involved in helping make this film in terms of being like consultants. And the the abortion scene is actually in one of their clinics. And I think it's it's good to see something like that where like they're being collaborated with because Previously, we just watched films like Knocked Up, where abortion isn't even uttered as a word. It's called the A-word or a shmushmorshman. So I think it's nice that it had more of a clear-eyed view about abortion. Yes, I found that scene very moving where she's in the clinic and you sort of appreciate that the American medical system is, I mean, it's worse now, but even then kind of the insurance of it all, you know, how you get these things, the kind of permission, the politics around it, it's its a real burden on um, women's reproductive health. I suppose stating the obvious, but then the film is called Obvious Child. So you two are going to make some recommendations, something that is not a movie. It can be anything that you want, uh, just a cultural highlight for people to look out for. Cambalet, what is your non-movie recommendation? I've been, uh, in the spirit of this week being a comic book movie release week, I've been reading a comic book series called Die by Kieran Gillen. It's published by Image, so it's more of like a kind of adult label. And it's about, in the author's words, quote unquote, when they're in a hurry, uh, it's goth Jumanji. So some kids who 
get disappeared into a tabletop role-playing game. They come out two years later and no one knows what happened to them. Cut to 20 years later and they come back together, kind of it style, and they get vanished into the game again, this time with a lot more emotional baggage. And the series is kind of this very slow unspooling of both role-playing games as a sort of interactive experience, but also the fantasy genre in general. And it's like kind of interactions with the problems of the real world. And it's just really, really beautiful. I like it a lot. I'm going to burn through it in a couple of sittings. That sounds absolutely fantastic. But I mean, it's a shame that my head is so movie-centric where I was just immediately like, can that please be adapted to a movie? <laughs> that sounds great. It would be really cool. Yasmin, what about you? What's your non-movie recommendation? This is a play and it's called Lemons, 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 Lemons. And you have to forgive the incredibly unwieldy title because it's actually very good. And it's currently showing at the Harold Pinter Theatre until the 18th of March. And it's a two-hander starring Jenna Coleman and Aidan Turner. And essentially the premise is this, it's set in this dystopian future where there's this quietude bill that has been passed meaning that you're only allowed to say 140 words every day. And it's looking at their relationship and how it kind of evolves and changes over the course of this. So at the beginning, they, they've they got a lot of repartee and wordplay and double entendres and stuff like that. But as soon as the bill comes in, they have to start dropping words from their vocabulary. And it's just very interesting. And also the kind of verbal gymnastics they have to perform to have these big conversations like, are we going to have kids? but using 140 words a day. So I thought it was very well done. And it's also, if you're not in London, it will be showing in Brighton and Manchester. Oh, that sounds great. I love Aim Turner as a performer. I saw him do um, The Lieutenant of Anishmore and he was so funny. But yeah, Jenna Coleman matches up to him. Yeah, it's it's just them on stage, two-hander, like no props, no nothing. It's just very much about the words. So you just like look at the set and allow that to sink in. I think she was very good. There's there's a standout moment where they like waste all of their words of the day trying to sing a song together, but then they, they don't have enough words to finish the song. And it's just very sad. <laughs> oh, that sounds brilliant. Thank you both so much. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, the title says it all with Cocaine Bear, Babies Become Currency and Karida's Broker, and for Film Club, Cocaine Isn't Needed to Make These Bears a Threat in Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man. And I'll also be talking to the National Theatre's Clint Dyer about his production of Othello being adapted to the big screen. Thank you very much for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guest this week, Kambale Kambale and Yasmin Omar. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.